Book Second, Chapter First, Parts One to Three of Tono Bungay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Tono Bungay by H. G. Wells, Book Second, Chapter First, Parts One to Three. Book the Second, The Rise of Tono Bungay. Chapter the First, How I Became a London Student and Went Astray. I came to live in London, as I shall tell you, when I was nearly twenty-two. Wimblehurst dwindles in perspective, is now in this book, a little place far off, blades over no more than a small pinkish speck of frontage among the distant Kentish hills. The scene broadens out, becomes multitudinous and limitless, full of the sense of vast irrelevant movement. I do not remember my second coming to London, as I do my first, for my early impressions, save that an October memory of softened amber sunshine stands out, amber sunshine falling on grey house fronts, I know not where, that, and a sense of a large tranquillity. I could fill a book, I think, with a more or less imaginary account of how I came to apprehend London, how first in one aspect and then in another it grew in my mind. Each day my accumulating impressions were added to and qualified and brought into relationship with new ones. They fused inseparably with others that were purely personal and accidental. I find myself with a certain comprehensive perception of London, complete indeed incurably indistinct in places and yet in some way a whole that began with my first visit and is still being mellowed and enriched london at first no doubt it was a chaos of streets and people and buildings and reasonless going to and fro i do not remember that i ever struggled very steadily to understand it or explored it with any but a personal and adventurous intention yet in time there has grown up in me a kind of theory of london i do think i see lines of an ordered structure out of which it has grown detected a process that is something more than a confusion of casual accidents though indeed it may be no more than a process of disease i said at the outset of my first book that i find in bladesover the clue to all england well i certainly imagine it is the clue to the structure of london there have been no revolutions no deliberate restatements or abandonments of opinion in england since the days of the fine gentry since sixteen eighty eight or thereabouts the days when bladesover was built there have been changes dissolving forest replacing forest if you will but then it was that the broad lines of the english system set firmly and as I have gone to and fro in London in certain regions constantly, the thought has recurred, this is Bladesover House. This answers to Bladesover House. The fine gentry may have gone. They have indeed largely gone, I think. Rich merchants may have replaced them, financial adventurers or what not. That does not matter. The shape is still Bladesover. I am most reminded of Bladesover and Eastry by all those regions round about the West End parks. For example, estate parks, each more or less in relation to a palace or group of great houses. The roads and backways of Mayfair and all about St. James again. 
albeit perhaps of a later growth in point of time, were of the very spirit and architectural texture of the Bladesover passages and yards. They had the same smells, the space, the large cleanest and always going to and fro where one met unmistakable Olympians and even more unmistakable valets, butlers, footmen in mufti. There were moments when I seemed to glimpse down areas of the white paneling, the very chintz of my mother's room again. I could trace out now on a map what I would call the great house region, passing southwestward into Belgravia, becoming diffused and sporadic westward, finding its last systematic outbreak round and about Regent's Park. The Duke of Devonshire's place in Piccadilly, in all its insolent ugliness, pleases me particularly. It is the quintessence of the thing. Apsley House is all in the manner of my theory. Park Lane has its quite typical mansions, and they run along the border of the Green Park and St. James. And I struck out on a truth one day in Cromwell Road, quite suddenly, as I looked over the Natural History Museum. By Jove, said I, but this is the little assemblage of cases of stuffed birds and animals upon the Bladesover staircase grown enormous. And yonder, as a corresponding thing to the Bladesover curios and porcelain, is the art museum. And there, in the little observatories in Exhibition Road, is old Sir Cuthbert's Gregorian telescope, that I hunted out in the storeroom and put together. And diving into the art museum under this inspiration, I came to a little reading room, and found, as I had inferred, old brown books. It was really a good piece of social comparative anatomy I did that day. All these museums and libraries that are dotted over London between Piccadilly and West Kensington, and indeed the museum and library movement throughout the world, sprang from the elegant leisure of the gentlemen of taste. Theirs were the first libraries, the first houses of culture. By my rat-like raids into the Bladesover Saloon, I became, as it were, the last dwindled representative of such a man of letters as Swift. But now these things have escaped out of the great house altogether, and taken on a strange independent life of their own. It is this idea of escaping parts from the seventeenth-century system of Bladesover, of proliferating and overgrowing elements from the estates, that to this day seems to me the best explanation, not simply of London, but of all England. England is a country of great renaissance landed gentlefolk who have been unconsciously outgrown and overgrown. The proper shops for Bladesover custom were still to be found in Regent Street and Bond Street in my early London days. In those days they had been but lightly touched by the American's profaning hand. And in Piccadilly. I found the doctor's house of the country village, or country town, up and down Harley Street, multiplied but not otherwise different, and the family solicitor, by the hundred, further eastward in the abandoned houses of a previous generation of gentle people, and down in Westminster, behind Palladian fronts, the public offices sheltered in large Bladesoverish rooms and looked out on St. James Park, the Parliament houses of lords and gentlemen, the Parliament House that was horrified when merchants and brewers came thrusting into it a hundred years ago stood out upon its terrace gathering the whole system together into a head. And the more I have paralleled these things with my Bladesover Eastry model, the more evident it has become to me that the balance is not the same, and the more evident is the presence of great new forces, 
blind forces of invasion, of growth. The railway termini on the north side of London have been kept as remote as Eastry had kept the railway station from Wimblehurst. They stop on the very outskirts of the estates, but from the south, the southeastern railway had butted its great stupid rusty iron head of Charing Cross Station, that great head that came smashing down in 1905, clean across the river, between Somerset House and Whitehall. The south side had no protecting estate. Factory chimneys smoke right over against Westminster with an air of carelessly not having permission and the whole effect of industrial london and of all london east of temple bar and of the huge dingy immensity of london port is to me of something disproportionately large something morbidly expanded without plan or intention dark and sinister toward the clean clear social assurance of the west end and south of this central london southeast southwest far west northwest all round the northern hills are similar disproportionate growths endless streets of undistinguished houses undistinguished industries shabby families second-rate shops inexplicable people who in a once fashionable phrase do not exist all these aspects have suggested to my mind at times do suggest to this day the unorganized abundant substance of some tumorous growth process a process which indeed bursts all the outlines of the affected carcass and protrudes such masses as ignoble comfortable croydon as tragic impoverished west ham to this day i ask myself will those masses ever become structural will they indeed shape into anything new whatever or is that cancerous image their true and ultimate diagnosis Moreover, together with this hypertrophy, there is an immigration of elements that have never understood and never will understand the great tradition, wedges of foreign settlement embedded in the heart of this yeasty English expansion. One day, I remember wandering eastward out of pure curiosity, it must have been in my early student days, and discovering a shabbily bright foreign quarter shops displaying hebrew placards and weird unfamiliar commodities and a concourse of bright-eyed eagle-nosed people talking some incomprehensible gibberish between the shops and the barrows and soon i became quite familiar with the devious vicious dirtily pleasant eroticism of soho i found those crowded streets a vast relief from the dull grey exterior of brompton where i lodged and lived my daily life in Soho, indeed, I got my first inkling of the factor of replacement that is so important in both the English and the American process. Even in the West End, in Mayfair and the Square, about Pell-Mell, Ewart was presently to remind me the face of the old aristocratic dignity with fairer than its substance. Here were actors and actresses, here money-lenders and Jews, here bold financial adventurers, and i thought of my uncle's frayed cuff as he pointed out this house in park lane and that that was so and so's who made a corner in borax and that palace belonged to that hero among modern adventurers barmintrude who used to be an i d b an illicit diamond buyer that is to say a city of bladesovers the capital of a kingdom of bladesovers all much shaken and many altogether in decay parasitically occupied insidiously replaced by alien unsympathetic and irresponsible elements 
and with the ruling an adventitious and miscellaneous empire of a quarter of this deedal earth complex laws intricate social necessities disturbing insatiable suggestions followed from this such was the world into which i had come into which i had in some way to thrust myself and fit my problem my temptations my efforts my patriotic instinct all my moral instincts my physical appetites my dreams and my sanity london i came up to it young and without advisers rather priggish rather dangerously open-minded and very open-eyed and with something it is i think the common gift of imaginative youth and i claim it unblushingly fine in me finer than the world and seeking fine responses i did not want simply to live or simply to live happily or well i wanted to serve and do and make with some nobility it was in me it is in half the youth of the world two i had come to london as a scholar i had taken the vincent bradley scholarship of the pharmaceutical society but i threw this up when i found that my work of the science and art department in mathematics physics and chemistry had given me one of the minor technical board scholarships at the consolidated technical schools at south kensington this latter was in mechanics and metallurgy and i hesitated between the two the vincent bradley gave me seventy pounds a year and quite the best start-off a pharmaceutical chemist could have the south kensington thing was worth about twenty-two shillings a week and the prospects it opened were vague but it meant far more scientific work than the former and i was still under the impulse of that great intellectual appetite that is part of the adolescence of men of my type moreover it seemed to lead towards engineering in which i imagined I imagine to this day, my particular use is to be found. I took its greater uncertainty as a fair risk. I came up very keen, not doubting that the really hard and steady industry that had carried me through Wimblehurst would go on still in the new surroundings. Only from the very first, it didn't. When I look back now at my Wimblehurst days, I still find myself surprised at the amount of steady grinding study of strenuous self-discipline that i maintained throughout my apprenticeship in many ways i think that time was the most honourable period in my life i wish i could say with a certain mind that my motives in working so well were large and honourable too to a certain extent they were so there was a fine sincere curiosity a desire for the strength and power of scientific knowledge and a passion for intellectual exercise but i do not think those forces alone would have kept me at it so grimly and closely if wimblehurst had not been so dull so limited and so observant directly i came into the london atmosphere tasting freedom tasting irresponsibility and the pull of new forces altogether my discipline fell from me like a garment wimblehurst to a youngster in my position offered no temptations worth counting no interests to conflict with study, no vices. Such vices as it offered were coarsely stripped of any imaginative, glamourful drunkenness, clumsy leering, shameful lust, no social intercourse even to waste one's time. And, on the other hand, it would minister greatly to the self-esteem of a conspicuously industrious student. One was marked as clever, 
one played up to the part, and one's little accomplishment stood out finely in one's private reckoning against the sunlit small ignorance of that agreeable place. One went with an intent rush across the market square. One took one's exercise with as dramatic a sense of an ordered day as an Oxford don. One burnt the midnight oil quite consciously at the rare, respectable, benighted passer-by and one stood out finally in the local paper with one's unapproachable yearly harvest of certificates thus i was not only a genuinely keen student but also a little of a prig and poseur in those days and the latter kept the former at it as london made clear moreover wimblehurst had given me no outlet in any other direction but i did not realize all this when i came to london did not perceive how the change of atmosphere began at once to warp and distribute my energies in the first place i became invisible if i idled for a day no one except my fellow students who evidently had no awe for me remarked it no one saw my midnight taper no one pointed me out as i crossed the street as an astonishing intellectual phenomenon in the next place i became inconsiderable in Wimblehurst I felt I stood for science. Nobody there seemed to have so much as I, and to have it so fully and completely. In London I walked ignorant in an immensity, and it was clear that among my fellow students from the Midlands and the North I was ill-equipped and undertrained. With the utmost exertion I should only take a secondary position among them. And finally, in the third place, I was distracted by voluminous new interests. London took hold of me, and science, which had been the universe, shrank back to the dimensions of tiresome little formulae compacted in a book. I came to London in late September, and it was a very different London from that great, grayly overcast, smoke-stained house wilderness of my first impressions. I reached it by Victoria, and not by Cannon Street, and its center was now in Exhibition Road. It shone, pale amber, blue-gray, and tenderly spacious and fine under clear autumnal skies. A London of hugely handsome buildings and vistas and distances. A London of gardens and labyrinthine tall museums, of old trees and remote palaces and artificial waters. I lodged nearby in West Brompton at a house in a little square. So London faced me the second time, making me forget altogether for a while the grey, drizzling city visage that had first looked upon me. I settled down and went to and fro to my lectures and laboratory. In the beginning I worked hard, and only slowly did the curiosity that presently possessed me to know more of this huge urban province arise. The desire to find something beyond mechanism that I could serve, some use other than learning. With this was a growing sense of loneliness, a desire for adventure and intercourse. I found myself in the evenings poring over a map of London I had bought, instead of copying out lecture notes, and on Sundays I made explorations, taking omnibus rides east and west and north and south, and to enlarging and broadening the sense of great swarming hinterlands of humanity with whom I had no dealings, of whom I knew nothing. The whole illimitable place teemed with suggestions of indefinite and sometimes outrageous possibility, of hidden but magnificent meanings. It wasn't simply that I received a vast impression of space and multitude and opportunity, 
Intimate things also were suddenly dragged from neglected, veiled, and darkened corners into an acute vividness of perception. Close at hand, in the big art museum, I came for the first time upon the beauty of nudity, which I had hitherto held to be a shameful secret, flaunted and gloried in. I was made aware of beauty as not only permissible, but desirable and frequent, and of a thousand hitherto unsuspected rich aspects of life. One night, in a real rapture, I walked round the upper gallery of the Albert Hall and listened for the first time to great music. I believe now that it was a rendering of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. My apprehension of spaces and places was reinforced by a quickened apprehension of persons. A constant stream of people passed by me, eyes met and challenged mine, and passed. More and more I wanted then to stay. If I went eastward towards Piccadilly, women who seemed then to my boyish inexperience softly splendid and alluring murmured to me as they passed extraordinarily life unveiled. The very hoardings clamored strangely at one's senses and curiosities. One bought pamphlets and papers full of strange and daring ideas, transcending one's boldest. In the parks one heard men discussing the very existence of God, denying the rights of property, debating a hundred things that one dared not think about in Wimblehurst And after the ordinary overcast day, after dull mornings, came twilight, and london lit up and became a thing of white and yellow and red jewels of light and wonderful floods of golden illumination and stupendous and unfathomable shadows and there were no longer any mean or shabby people but a great mysterious movement of unaccountable beings always i was coming on the queerest new aspects Late one Saturday night, I found myself one of a great slow-moving crowd between the blazing shops and the flaring barrows in the Harrow Road. I got into conversation with two bold-eyed girls. I bought them boxes of chocolate, made the acquaintance of father and mother and various younger brothers and sisters, sat in a public house hilariously with them all, standing and being stood drinks, and left them in the small hours at the door of home, never to see them again and once I was accosted on the outskirts of a Salvation Army meeting in one of the parks by a silk-hatted young man of eager and serious discourse, who argued against skepticism with me, invited me home to tea into a clean and cheerful family of brothers and sisters and friends, and there I spent the evening singing hymns to the harmonium, which reminded me of half-forgotten Chatham, and wishing all the sisters were not so obviously engaged. Then, on the remote hill of this boundless city world, I found Ewart. 3. How well I remember the first morning, a bright Sunday morning in early October, when I raided in upon Ewart. I found my old schoolfellow in bed in a room over an oil shop in a back street at the foot of Highgate Hill. His landlady, a pleasant, dirty young woman with soft brown eyes, brought down his message for me to come up, and up I went. The room presented itself as ample and interesting in detail, and shabby with a quite commendable shabbiness. I had an impression of brown walls. They were papered with brown paper, of a long shelf along one side of the room with dusty plaster casts, and a small cheap lay figure of a horse, of a table and something of grey wax partially covered with a cloth, and of scattered drawings. 
There was a gas stove in one corner and some enameled ware that had been used for overnight cooking. The oilcloth on the floor was streaked with a peculiar white dust. Ewart himself was not in the first instance visible, but only a fourfold canvas screen at the end of the room from which shouts proceeded of, Come on! Then his wiry black hair, very much rumpled, and a staring red-brown eye, and his stump of a nose came around the edge of this at a height of about three feet from the ground. "'It's old Ponderevo,' he said. "'The early bird. And he's caught the worm. By Jove, but it's cold this morning. Come round here and sit on the bed.' I walked round, wrung his hand, and we surveyed one another. He was lying on a small wooden fold-up bed the scanty covering of which was supplemented by an overcoat and an elderly but still cheerful pair of check trousers and he was wearing pajamas of a virulent pink and green his neck seemed longer and more stringy than it had been even in our school days and his upper lip had a wiry black moustache the rest of his ruddy knobby countenance his erratic hair and his general hairy leanness had not even to my perceptions grown "'By Jove!' he said. "'You've got quite decent-looking, Ponderevo. "'What do you think of me?' "'You're all right. "'What are you doing here?' "'Art, my son. "'Sculpture. "'And, incidentally,' he hesitated, "'I ply a trade. "'Will you hand me that pipe and those smoking things?' "'So, you can't make coffee, eh? "'Well, try your hand. "'Cast down this screen. "'No, fold it up, and so we'll go into the other room.' I'll keep in bed all the same. The fire's a gas stove. Yes, don't make it bang too loud as you light it. I can't stand it this morning. You won't smoke. Well, it does me good to see you again, Ponderevo. Tell me what you're doing, and how you're getting on. He directed me in the service of his simple hospitality, and presently I came back to his bed and sat down and smiled at him there smoking comfortably with his hands under his head surveying me how's life's morning ponderevo by jove it must be nearly six years since we met they've got mustaches we've fleshed ourselves a bit eh and you i felt a pipe was becoming after all and that lit i gave him a favorable sketch of my career science and you've worked like that while I've been potting round doing odd jobs for stonemasons and people and trying to get to sculpture. I've a sort of feeling that the chisel, I began with painting Ponderevo, and found I was colorblind, colorblind enough to stop it. I've drawn about and thought about, thought more particularly. I give myself three days a week as an art student, and the rest of the time I've a sort of trade that keeps me. And we're still in the beginning of things young men starting do you remember the old times at goudhurst our doll's house island the retreat of the ten thousand young homes and the rabbits eh it's surprising if you think of it to find we are still young and we used to talk of what we would be and we used to talk of love i suppose you know all about that now ponderevo i finished and hesitated on some vague foolish lie no i said a little ashamed of the truth do you? I've been too busy. I'm just beginning, just as we were then. Things happen. He sucked at his pipe for a space and stared at the plaster cast of a flayed hand that hung on the wall. 
The fact is, Ponderevo, I'm beginning to find life a most extraordinary queer set-out. The things that pull one, the things that don't. The wants, this business of sex. It's a net. No end to it. No way out of it. No sense in it. There are times when women take possession of me, when my mind is like a painted ceiling at Hampton Court, with the pride of the flesh sprawling all over it. Why? And then again sometimes, when I have to encounter a woman, I am overwhelmed by a terror of tantalizing boredom. I fly. I hide. I do anything. You've got your scientific explanations, perhaps. What's nature and the universe up to in that matter? It's her way, I gather, of securing the continuity of the species. But it doesn't, said Ewart. That's just it. No, I have succumbed to dissipation, down the hill there, Euston Roadway, and it was damned ugly and mean, and I hate having done it. And the continuity of the species? Lord! And why does nature make a man so infernally ready for drinks? There's no sense in that anyhow. He sat up in bed, to put this question with a greater earnestness. And why has she given me a most violent desire toward sculpture, and an equally violent desire to leave off work directly I begin it? Eh? Let's have some more coffee. I put it to you, these things puzzle me, Ponderevo. They dishearten me. They keep me in bed. He had an air of having saved up these difficulties for me for some time. He sat with his chin almost touching his knees, sucking at his pipe. "'That's what I mean,' he went on, "'when I say life is getting on to me as extraordinarily queer. I don't see my game, nor why I was invited, and I don't make anything of the world outside either. What do you make of it?' "'London,' I began, "'it's so enormous.' "'Isn't it? And it's all up to nothing. "'You find chaps keeping grocer's shops. "'Why the devil, Ponderevo, do they keep grocer's shops? "'They all do it very carefully, very steadily, very meanly. "'You find people running about and doing the most remarkable things, "'being policemen, for example, and burglars. "'They go about these businesses quite gravely and earnestly. "'I somehow can't go about mine.' Is there any sense in it at all? Anywhere? There must be sense in it, I said. We're young. We're young, yes, but one must inquire. The grocer's a grocer because, I suppose, he sees he comes in there, feels that on the whole it amounts to a call. But the bother is, I don't see where I come in at all. Do you? Where you come in? No, where you come in. Not exactly yet, I said. I want to do some good in the world, something, something effectual before I die. I have a sort of idea, my scientific work, I don't know. Yes, he mused, and I've got a sort of idea, my sculpture, but how it is to come in, and why, I've no idea at all. He hugged his knees for a space. That's what puzzles me, Ponderevo, no end. He became animated. If you will look in that cupboard, he said, you will find an old respectable-looking roll on a plate and a knife somewhere and a gallipot containing butter. You give them me and I'll make my breakfast, and then, if you don't mind watching me paddle about at my simple toilet, I'll get up. Then we'll go for a walk and talk about this affair of life farther. 
and about art and literature and anything else that crops up on the way. Yes, that's the gallipot. Cockroach got in it? Check him out. Damned interloper. So, in the first five minutes of our talk, as I seem to remember it now, old Ewart struck the note that ran through all that morning's intercourse. To me, it was a most memorable talk, because it opened out quite new horizons of thought. I'd been working rather close and out of touch with Ewart's free gesticulating way. He was pessimistic that day, and skeptical to the very root of things. He made me feel clearly, what I had not felt at all before, the general adventurousness of life, particularly of life at the stage we had reached, and also the absence of definite objects of any concerted purpose in the lives that were going on all round us. He made me feel, too, how ready I was to take up commonplace assumptions. Just as I had always imagined that somewhere in social arrangements there was certainly a headmaster who would intervene if one went too far, so I had always had a sort of implicit belief that in our England there were somewhere people who understood what we were all, as a nation, about that crumbled into his pit of doubt and vanished. He brought out, sharply cut and certain, the immense effect of purposelessness in London that I was already indistinctly feeling. We found ourselves at last returning through Highgate Cemetery and Waterloo Park, and Ewart was talking. "'Look at it there,' he said, stopping and pointing at the great veil of London, spreading wide and far. "'It's like a sea, and we swim in it.' and at last down we go and then up we come washed up here he swung his arms to the long slopes about us tombs and headstones in long perspectives in limitless rows we're young ponderevo but sooner or later our whitened memories will wash up on one of these beaches on some such beach as this george ponderevo f r s sydney ewart r i p look at the rows of em he paused do you see that hand, the hand, I mean, pointing upward, on the top of a blunted obelisk? Yes, well, that's what I do for a living, when I'm not thinking, or drinking, or prowling, or making love, or pretending I'm trying to be a sculptor without either the money or the morals for a model, see? And I do those hearts afire, and those pensive angel guardians with the palm of peace. Damned well I do em, and damned cheap. I'm a sweated victim, Ponderevo. That was the way of it, anyhow. I drank deep of talk that day. We went into theology, into philosophy. I had my first glimpse of socialism. I felt as though I had been silent in a silence since I and he had parted. At the thought of socialism, Ewart's moods changed for a time to a sort of energy. After all, all this confounded vagueness might be altered if you could get men to work together. It was a good talk that rambled through all the universe. I thought I was giving my mind refreshment, but indeed it was dissipation. All sorts of ideas, even now, carrying me back, as it were, to a fountainhead, to Waterloo Park and my resuscitated Ewart. There stretches away south of us long garden slopes and white gravestones and the wide expanse of London, and somewhere in the picture is a red old wall sun-warmed and a great blaze of michaelmas daisies set off with late golden sunflowers and a drift of mottled blood-red fallen leaves 
It was with me that day as though I had lifted my head suddenly out of dull and immediate things and looked at life altogether. But it played the very devil with the copying up of my arrears of notes to which I had vowed the latter half of that day. After that reunion, Ewart and I met much and talked much, and in our subsequent encounters his monologue was interrupted and I took my share. He had exercised me so greatly that I lay awake at nights thinking him over, and discoursed and answered him in my head as I went in the morning to the college. I am by nature a doer, and only by the way a critic. His philosophical assertion of the incalculable vagueness of life which fitted his natural indolence roused my more irritable and energetic nature to active protests. It's all so pointless, I said, because people are slack and because it's in the ebb of an age. But you're a socialist. Well, let's bring that about. And there's a purpose. There you are. Eward gave me all my first conceptions of socialism. In a little while I was an enthusiastic socialist, and he was a passive resister to the practical exposition of the theories he had taught me. We must join some organization, I said. We ought to do things. We ought to go and speak at street corners. People don't know. You must figure me a rather ill-dressed young man in a state of great earnestness, standing up in that shabby studio of his and saying these things, perhaps with some gesticulations, and Ewart with a clay-smudged face, dressed perhaps in a flannel shirt and trousers, with a pipe in his mouth, squatting philosophically at a table, working at some chunk of clay that never got beyond suggestion. I wonder why one doesn't want to, he said. It was only very slowly I came to gauge Ewart's real position in the scheme of things, to understand how deliberate and complete was this detachment of his from the moral condemnation and responsibilities that played so fine a part in his talk. His was essentially the nature of an artistic appreciator. He could find interest and beauty in endless aspects of things that I marked as evil, or at least as not negotiable, and the impulse I had toward self-deception to sustained and consistent self-devotion, disturbed and detached and pointless as it was at that time, he had indeed a sort of admiration for, but no sympathy. Like many fantastic and ample talkers, he was at bottom secretive and he gave me a series of little shocks of discovery throughout our intercourse. The first of these came in the realization that he quite seriously meant to do nothing in the world at all towards reforming the evils he laid bare in so easy and dexterous a manner. The next came in the sudden appearance of a person called Millie, I've forgotten her surname, whom I found in his room one evening, simply attired in a blue wrap, the rest of her costume behind the screen, smoking cigarettes and sharing a flagon of an amazingly cheap and self-assertive grocer's wine Ewart affected, called Cannery Sack. "'Hullo,' said Ewart, as I came in. "'This is Millie, you know. She's been being a model. She is a model, really. Keep calm, Ponderevo. Have some sack?' Millie was a woman of thirty, perhaps, with a broad, rather pretty face, a placid disposition, a bad accent, and delightful blonde hair that waved off her head with an irrepressible variety of charm, and whenever Ewart spoke she beamed at him. Ewart was always sketching this hair of hers and embarking upon clay statuettes of her that were never finished. She was, 
I know now, a woman of the streets, whom Ewart had picked up in the most casual manner, and who had fallen in love with him. But my inexperience in those days was too great for me to place her then, and Ewart offered no elucidations. She came to him, he went to her. They took holidays together in the country, when certainly she sustained her fair share of their expenditure. I suspect him now even of taking money from her. Odd old Ewart! It was a relationship so alien to my orderly conceptions of honor, to what I could imagine any friend of mine doing, that I really hardly saw it with it there under my nose. But I see it, and I think I understand it now. Before I fully grasped the discursive manner in which Ewart was committed to his particular way in life, I did, I say, as the broad constructive ideas of socialism took hold of me, try to get him to work with me in some definite fashion as a socialist. We ought to join on to other socialists, I said. They've got something. Let's go and look at some first. After some pains, we discovered the office of the Fabian Society, lurking in a cellar in Clement's Inn, and we went and interviewed a rather discouraging secretary who stood astraddle in front of a fire and questioned us severely and seemed to doubt the integrity of our intentions profoundly. He advised us to attend the next open meeting in Clifford's Inn and gave us the necessary data. We both contrived to get to the affair, and heard a discursive gritty paper on trusts, and one of the most inconclusive discussions you can imagine. Three-quarters of the speakers seemed under some jocular obsession, which took the form of pretending to be conceited. It was a sort of family joke, and as strangers to the family, we did not like it. As we came out through the narrow passage from Clifford's Inn to the Strand, Ewart suddenly pitched upon a wizened, speckled little man in a vast felt hat and a large orange tie. "'How many members are there in this Fabian society of yours?' he asked. The little man became at once defensive in his manner. "'About seven hundred, he said. Perhaps eight. Like, like the ones here?' The little man gave a nervous, self-satisfied laugh. "'I suppose they're up to sample,' he said. The little man dropped out of existence, and we emerged upon the strand. Ewart twisted his arm into a queerly eloquent gesture that gathered up all the tall façades of the banks, the business places, the projecting clock and towers of the law courts, the advertisements, the luminous signs, into one social immensity, into a capitalistic system gigantic and invincible. "'These socialists have no sense of proportion,' he said. "'What can you expect of them?' End of Book Second, Chapter First, Parts One to Three. Recording by William Tomko.